So that definitely sounds like a trombone. Definitely. And a song that I know quite well from the piano. <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about plastic recycling today. Well, let's wait and find out what the trombones have to do with it. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hi, listeners. Hey, Shuko. Have a look around you. Do you see plastic anywhere? I bet you do. And everybody who's listening to this, you probably have a piece of plastic in your ears. Earbuds, of course. Uh, the headphones I'm wearing right now, and th they certainly have a good amount of plastic. And then, of course, there is my computer, mm -hmm. screen, yep. the pens on my desk, water bottle. Of course, I mean, not my coffee mug. That's famous for my, my video calls. Uh, but, you know, you really don't have to look very far to see plastic all around us. It's everywhere, and it's pretty much impossible to avoid it. That's because it has some great features. But... A lot of plastic is single-use, so we produce a lot of plastic waste. Which we should be separating from other waste so that it can be recycled, right? That's actually a funny question, because do you actually do that? How does recycling work where you live? Shuko, my wife is German. Of course we are recycling. <laughs> of course we are. And and yes, uh, we, we do have it. It is the sorting process is uh, not as intensive as in... In mm -hmm. Germany, uh, you know, we don't have the three separate containers. We have uh, a single container for our home, uh, which is picked up uh, the same day as the garbage. And then uh, it's taken to a facility where they're, they're recycling that. Okay. Well, I, even though I had expected your wife to be uh, recycling, I didn't know if it was really supported in the U.S. Let's just say it Absolutely. that way. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, no. It, 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 it really is. But, you know, um, I guess many of our listeners probably aren't terribly familiar with the German approach. Could you share that a little bit? So I actually have four bins. Um, one of them is for, uh, I would say, the Restmüll, as we call it. So everything that uh, you, know, you use... Yeah, well, for the garbage, basically. Then you have a container for cardboard or paper in general. Then I have another one for what we call the gelbe sack. So there, a lot of things that are recycled uh, go into that bag. And then our whole building also has another bin for, I would say, all of the vegetable or like, uh, yeah, the vegetable waste. So flowers, um, any kind of waste coming from uh, orange peels, that kind of thing. Biomul. <laughs> Yeah, Biomüll. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. See, I remember like three <laughs> things about Germany. <laughs> Recycling, your wife, and... <laughs> Schnitzel. Schnitzel. Uh, but it really does seem like uh, every country is kind of doing it different. I, I can say, at least in the U.S., even our localities, from town to town, there's differences. <laughs> and it creates, it creates quite, quite some confusion. Yeah, why make it simple when you can make it difficult? Um, and I often notice this as well when I'm on vacation. I'm unsure of what waste item goes in which bins. Um, and, you know, in the different vacation homes, you have different labeling systems. Mm -hmm. um, so here's another example. This is how it works in Singapore. So currently, most of the residents in Singapore do live in high-rise buildings and so on. So what we do have, unlike other places, is... 
that in each floor there is a chute where you drop all your waste. So this is where most people, including myself, dispose. So it doesn't itself have separate bins for recycling. This is our colleague Siddhartha Andalam, who is a senior research scientist at Bosch Research in Singapore. You can call me Sid. So Sid and the people in his high-rise don't recycle at all? Everything is just going down the chute? Well, there's a semi-option to recycle, at least. Also at the ground floor, you do have the blue bins. Plastics, glass and cardboard and so on can be put there and then we can recycle. How many people actually do that? That I don't know. What I do know is that only 6% of plastics are recovered in Singapore, as Sid told me. Even when recyclables get thrown into the recycling bins, most of them don't actually get recycled. Right now in Singapore, trucks come in daily and then collect all this waste and then most of the recycling plant where they try to recover as much as plastics possible. And I visited one of these sites and what we learned is only up to 15% of the recyclable items are being picked. 15%. So that basically the other way is 85% of what users are basically trying to recycle ends up in a landfill anyway. A landfill or an incineration plant. And Sid wanted to do something about it. At the beginning, I want to save the planet. But it gets lost later on, people asking, where is the money first? Yeah, money can be a very powerful motivator. He understands that he has to find a way to make saving the planet a profitable business. Or scaling it down a bit, to help increase recycling rates in Singapore, he would have to convince people that there's money to be made with. If we do sort plastics properly, is there money to be made? Is there value to be added? To find answers, he goes out to Singapore's main recycling facility, somewhere on the outskirts of the city. It's in a remote location in the north of Singapore. So from the city or area, you can travel one hour by train. And then you catch a bus. Maybe another 20, 30 minutes. And you walk for 10, 15 minutes. So you're spending literally two hours and then you reach there. It's very dirty and smelly and so on. And it's noisy as well. Imagine this is your workplace. And it's hot and sweaty too. Trucks come in. And then dump everything on the floor. And then there is this crane kind of thing that excavator that picks up everything and then puts it on one of these vibrators, conveyor bell sings, and it goes on. In Singapore, all the different recyclables are collected together. For residential places, they don't actually have separate bins for paper, glass, and everything else that, uh, that Sid mentioned earlier. So what follows is a sorting process done in parts by machines, but to a big extent still by human workers. First, there is one line where they pick up bulky items. So the big cardboards are being picked, and then it later goes through another machinery that picks up the metal items, mainly the ferrous ones that can be picked up by a magnet. Then you have a machine that separates based on density. So you have something like paper, cardboard on one side, and then heavy ones like the plastic bottles, cans, aluminum cans, paint buckets, shoes, everything falls onto the other side. So at this point, it has been weeded out a little bit. But as you heard Sid say, there's still a lot of different materials in the mix. What they do is they have workers alongside the conveyor belt, and each worker picks one type of material. So one person picks aluminium cans, 
The next one picks PET bottles. The next one picks another type of plastic and so on. But this system doesn't work very well. Only 11 to 15% of the items are being picked. So why is this percentage still so low after we've already had basically two filters? Mm -hmm. One reason is it's difficult to find workers for this type of job. There's a high turnover, so people often leave after only a very short time. Sometimes they even quit on their first day of work. That is surprising and then understandable why it's so difficult to keep good people. It's not going to get any better anytime soon. Singapore's population is aging, and there's a shortage of people who could do this kind of job. But this is where potentially the automation can help. Robots? Robots. Well, can robots do this job? So that's what Sid tries to figure out next. And when I say Sid, of course I mean him and his team. There's a bunch of them that now want to develop a system that can help sort through a waste stream with a focus on plastic. The task is definitely not as simple as it sounds. Consider that the workers, if they don't leave on their first lunch break, require a lot of training. The facility owners put a lot of effort into training. It takes nearly three to four months to train a person to identify a plastics. Because they're supposed to distinguish between the PET and so on, but what are the other types? The significant of them are PT and HDP. There's a little bit of the PP, the food grades, like your coffee or something like that in the drinks and so on. But that can be dropped into an HDP bin of the type. HDPE is typically used for things like shampoo bottles. PET is commonly used for water bottles. And PP you'd find in margin tubs, storage containers, or bottle caps. They sound and feel differently, but obviously Sid needs a better way to tell them apart. The difficult thing is to reliably identify them and do it quickly because the conveyor belt goes at a certain speed. And that's challenging for a robot too, who would perhaps use a camera system to identify the objects. Most of the times we would be found from the camera based thing, it's not very clear. It is, you know, an image does not reflect directly a type of plastic bottle. So they needed another type of technology that is better than imaging technology in the visible spectrum. Okay, so are we going up or are we going down in wavelength? Is it becoming infrared or ultraviolet? It's actually neither. We're talking about terahertz. Terahertz. So what the terahertz allows is kind of like an X-ray technology, but no radiation and so on. It gives out a unique signature of an item material, right? The different types of plastics, cardboards, and so on. This allows us, for the first time, to identify the items and then classify them based on this unique signature. So if you've never heard of terahertz waves, that's no surprise. They haven't been widely used. And we'll get to the reason why. Generally speaking, they are an electromagnetic wave, just like any other. So where in the electromagnetic spectrum are they? Let's see. At the bottom end of this spectrum, we have radio waves, and those go up to 300 megahertz. Obviously, we're using them for, yes, radio, but also mm -hmm. TV, phones, yep. GPS, and so on. And at the top end of the electromagnetic spectrum, we have gamma rays and X-rays. And these are in the exahertz range, 
We're familiar with those from medical imaging,、mm-hmm. and they're also important in astronomy. And sometimes they're used also for sterilization. Let's move one step closer towards the center of the spectrum. So at the bottom, after radio waves, we have microwaves up to 300 gigahertz. Microwaves are also used in any type of wireless communication. Our home Wi-Fi, for example, is using microwaves, just like satellites do. So it's basically antenna technology. And if we go back to the other end of the spectrum, where we now move towards light, first the ultraviolet, then the visible spectrum, and as we move down towards the green, yellow, and red light, we arrive at invisible infrared light. Maybe at home you've used an infrared lamp to fight a sinus infection. So what's next? Nothing. There must be something between microwaves and infrared. There is a gap. We also call this range as Tara's gap. Terahertz gap. That's Sid's coworker Jin Han Jun. The conventional device cannot generate this wavelength. Such as the Tara's range. Maybe you noticed when we discussed the applications for the different wave ranges at the upper end of the spectrum, the technology we use is what we call optical technology, lamps, lenses, and so on. And at the bottom end, we use electronics, various types of antennas. But what do we do where the optical range and the microwave range meet? Okay, that's interesting. So the gap is there because our technology is optimized for higher or lower frequencies, but we haven't exactly figured out how to handle the terahertz frequency band. Only recently have science and engineering focused on it a little more, and now applications are appearing. They use the two both optics as well as the electronics. So we're talking about a hybrid approach, trying to balance out the advantages and the disadvantages of either technology. So recently, several investigators they achieved a lot of the in you know, advanced in the telescopes and detectors using the quantum cassette laser and other things. Also, the detector wise, they are based on the semiconductor area. They miniaturized some detector to use the telas imaging device like a telas Canon or telas camera. So the technology is becoming available. And Jinhan and Sid ordered a terahertz scanner, but also an infrared scanner and other technologies to figure out how best to distinguish between different types of plastic. Turns out, nothing beats terahertz. Those type of、uh, plastic has a different dielectric property as well as the polarity. So on the teras range, they shows the different teras optics properties in terms of the absorption. Transmission and reflection. So, the based on the, these different pictures, we can identify the types of the plastic. By the way, you've probably seen images from a terahertz scanner. Oh, have I? You've perhaps seen some astronomical images that were made with terahertz imaging, but also those newer full body scanners, for example, at the airport that you know swivel around you. They work with terahertz waves. Oh, I didn't know that. That's another reason why terahertz waves are great. They allow you to look beneath the surface of an object, but without the dangerous ionization that X-ray comes with. Through the scanning technology, we are able to see what is inside. So, when there's liquid 
or aluminum foil inside, it looks much darker. We can see the density is different. And now we're getting into the area where the technology could indeed make recycling and sorting plastic waste more profitable. This allows us to further separate the plastics based on how clean they are inside. And not only do they have different bins for a different type of plastic, but different bins for clean and dirty plastic as well. So for the company running the facility, that makes a huge difference when they sell the sorted plastic. The difference between a clean and a non-sorted ones is almost 50% more in revenue. And who could say no to that kind of extra money? <laughs> which means the recycled alert is going to make more money, which helps to drive the efforts to pick up more from the waste. Sid thinks that if you can better sort the plastic waste and, I mean, therefore make more money with it, that incentivizes companies to collect more plastic. So this helps to increase the recycling rates as well. That totally makes sense. There's money to be made from sorted plastic waste. Mm -hmm. And now we've already discussed that they can't pick more because there simply aren't enough people willing to work in this environment. But perhaps there's more revenue and that would really justify the cost of an investment into a robot. To the point exactly, Jeff. So what Sid and his team have developed is a, a robot that gets input from an AI. And the AI tells the robot which item to pick and what bin they should go into. And the AI itself classifies the items based on images from a terahertz scanner. With this solution, they can drive up the recycling rate from, what was it, 15%? Now to 100%? The key thing here is to not to aim for 100% recovery yet, because no one is expecting that. But what is really important is to maintain the quality which means about the purity of the waste. If the AI model classifies this as a PET bottle, then it has to be nearly 100% sure. So it is okay to miss items on the conveyor belt, but however, whatever you pick or you classify this as a PET, that has to be nearly 100% sure. And from what we tested, we are upwards of 98% that we our predictions are right. Wow. So we did miss few, but whatever we classified and we identified, that was right. That's definitely a wow. <laughs> wow. We said earlier that a world without plastic is basically unimaginable at this point. Mm -hmm. Plastic is not always bad. Sometimes plastic isn't the problem. Rather, it is, in fact, the solution. For example, if you're trying to get kids to learn to play the trombone. Stephen Greenhall says in 2007, he had the feeling that the trombone, an instrument that he has played since he was nine, was going to go extinct soon. I got together with two of my friends and colleagues, and we started thinking about how could we get children more interested in the trombone, an instrument that hasn't been changed for four to five hundred years. And we came up with a concept for a trombone made out of plastic. Quick question. Why is a plastic trombone better than a brass trombone? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is plastic is simply more robust. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't rust, it doesn't 
tarnish. And, you know, kids, they have a tendency to drop things, just like Steve did when he was little. I remember the heavy brass trombone in a big, horrible box and having to take it into school for rehearsals and practice. And it was quite an expensive instrument uh, to try out. And like all the other nine-year-olds, I dropped my slide and the slide is a really, really important thing. So I dented my slide and we had to take it to the repairer. We had to fix it. So I remember those barriers. And these days, there's an additional barrier. When I was a child, which um, is quite a few years ago, shall we say, (laughs) I didn't really have technology to be doing things with or Xboxes or iPhones or, you know, uh, other things to distract me. So I kept going and I enjoyed it. I can relate to the distractions of modern technology. And I can imagine how that's more interesting to a child than learning to play the trombone. So Steve's conclusion was that kids need to start playing the trombone earlier. Not when they're nine, like he was when he started, but maybe at the age of six. Which does actually make sense. And although I don't really know, I'm pretty sure a six-year-old would probably drop it even more than a a nine-year-old. Yes, indeed, because they are, as he mentioned, quite heavy. Uh, A brass trombone weighs about five kilograms. And with plastic, Steve, in 2007, was hoping to reduce that weight by 90%. He and his friends want to build a trombone out of ABS plastic. That's the stuff that 3D printers are using. There was no book. No one had done it before. In fact, we we spent a long time getting it wrong, which was depressing at times and demoralizing, but exciting at the same point, as, as it often is. I guess there's a reason why they're typically made out of brass. It probably sounds better. It certainly has some advantages. Steve's team experiments for three years on how to make the plastic trombone that sounds like, well... Like a trombone and not like a trombone-shaped object. They came to realize that plastic has some of the characteristics that they can use to their advantage, too. And one of the fundamental differences between brass instruments and plastic instruments is the ability to vary the wall thicknesses. Varying the wall thickness is one parameter that they can play around with to impact the sound, especially closer to the mouthpiece. That's where the sound gets shaped, while the other end of the instrument acts more like an amplifier. What we really learned was we could do it. We could affect the sound and we could make it sound more and more like a real instrument, a real brass instrument, by changing things on the shape. For example, on the tuning slides and on the lead pipe. When you look at his plastic trombone, On the outside, it looks pretty much like your typical trombone. On the inside, it's quite different. And it's those differences that really make it sound like a real trombone or a real trumpet. I can hear that he solved the technical challenge. But has it really kept the trombone from going extinct? Is this enough to make kids play the trombone? Well, let's see. The plastic instruments are lighter, and we already said that. They're also a lot cheaper, and they come in different colors. We found that all of those things coming together created, a, in a way, a bit like a trombone revolution. And since then, we've gone on to sell 250,000 wow. P-bones, the plastic trombone, and another 350,000 other plastic instruments that we've developed to 53 countries all over the world. So... Yeah, sounds like he did it, and it's fantastic. Now, since we've been talking about recycling in the environment, let me add, 
According to Stephen, plastic is in fact a more sustainable choice than brass. Their manufacturing process uses a tenth of the energy compared to making an instrument out of brass. And when they ship their instruments around the globe, it makes a difference that they're much lighter. Also, ABS plastic, again, the 3D printer plastic, is very easy to recycle. Unfortunately, though, his company, Warwick Music Group, can't use recycled ABS plastic themselves. It's difficult because of the safety laws around child products. And in our case, it's not easy for us to access recycled ABS from a source which we know is 100% safe. They'd need to make sure that the plastic, before it was recycled, wasn't used in some toxic environment, for example. It would probably need to come with some sort of provenance certificate. If there are people listening to this podcast who know how to help us solve that problem, I'd love to hear from them. Well, I think we might know somebody who has a tiny idea. Terra has QR codes. Sid and his team have been thinking about embedding QR codes into the plastic that shows up in the terahertz image. So when you scan through the terahertz technology, you can identify what type of plastic it is, or origin, and so on. So this can help with the traceability compared to the printed QR codes that could be lost. That's pretty cool. It definitely is. And he's looking at traceability from a slightly different angle. He wants to give businesses a way to prove how much of their plastic has been recycled. That is becoming more important as regulations around the topic become more strict. Even without QR codes, the terahertz waste sorting technology can spit out some data about the recycling rate. He makes the example of a shopping mall. Because in the shopping mall, you see that separate bits, right? One for the plastic, bottles, paper, and general waste, and so on. But they would like to understand, is it being recycled or not? How much is being recycled? And then we are now able to say, actually, from the waste that we collected from hotel or shopping mall, 80% was recovered, or 20% was recovered. Using the terahertz scanner just for that is the low-hanging fruit, he says. It's relatively easy to install and not as expensive as the whole system with a robot sorting the waste. But there's also some middle ground. You don't necessarily need a costly robot arm if you have access to a workforce. But that was the issue exactly in Singapore, wasn't it? It was. But in other countries, the situation is different. Where there's enough labor force available, it's better to not deploy a robot, for example. Because that's what's really important to understand are if you're going to deploy the robots, are they stealing jobs, right? That's a common question several us. So instead, a version of SID's technology can help them make their job better. We can use lights to guide the picking. And in this case, the AI still decides which items to pick based on the terahertz scan. But the actual picking is done by humans. The system simply shines a light on the item that the worker should pick. So we remove that decision-making process that a human has to go through to identify the plastic. Now we just look at the lights and then picks it up. And that solves the issue with the long training that's necessary to maintain that high quality. This way, anybody can sort through with high accuracy right from day one. Precisely. And I really hope that this technology will divert a lot of recyclable plastic from landfills. I'm sure it will. And you know, prices for recycled plastics are actually going up. And that's only going to help the rollout of those terahertz scanners more quickly. The fact that this can help people make money will be good for adoption. 
and intern for the environment. Although the best thing that everyone of us can do is to not only separate your garbage from your recycling, but also avoid creating plastic waste in the first place. We really need to use less plastic. Especially single-use plastic. If it's a trombone that you play for a few years, that's a different story, of course. And with that, we're marching out. Thanks for listening. Leave us a review if you like the show. And especially if you have ideas to help Stephen with his sourcing problem. Hear you next time. Bye. Bye. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. Do you want to hear more about how terahertz plastic sorting works? On the next Deep Dive episode with me, Jeff's voice avatar, Bosch Associate Sid, will share some more details on how they trained the AI and what the future of the technology might look like.